Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode in the Leaders of Cyber and Risk series, we have a very special guest, Greg. So hi, Greg. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the company you work for and what they do? I don't know how special I am, but uh, I'm, my name is Greg Vandergast. I've been doing cybersecurity in some way, shape or form for about 25 years now. The whole, I think, range from teenage hacker to CISO and you know, technical management, other consultancy, various roles in between. I'm currently CISO for ScoutBee GmbH. Uh, yeah, go. So ScoutBee is a scale-up SaaS-like company. And we basically help very, very large organizations with their supply chains. So we think in security, we're always thinking about software, that kind of supply chain, but we're thinking more manufacturing. So aviation, automotive, fast-moving consumer goods. Our clients are like you know, Bosch, Airbus, Siemens, John Deere. Unilever, all, all these behemoths, and we help them find suppliers to build their products, cut time to market, uh, ethical sourcing, more environmentally friendly sourcing, all that good stuff. Fantastic. So I know you kind of mentioned your role is the CISO at this position. So can you talk to me a little bit about overview of your role, how that came about, great for our listeners to understand that. How the role came about, I'll start there. I had a conversation with the co-CEO and he said, would you like to be our CISO? And I said, yes. So that was, <laughs> that was fairly straightforward. In terms of role, I find, I think I do security a little bit differently. I like to get to the root causes of things. So I consider security to be very much a, a quality function. So in my role, I try to improve everything from engineering processes, yeah, how we communicate internally, how we build things, how we build applications, how people communicate, a lot of governance around you know, defining processes, making sure we do things properly, repeatedly, uh, in a way that's very visible, so that we have a lot less attack surface, if you want to call it that, a lot fewer issues, even human issues, cultural issues, rather than just throwing stacks and stacks of uh, tech at things. And that means we have a lot less to manage in terms of actual security incidents, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's very much, um, it's quite a holistic thing. Everything from organizational health, business success, how can we market security? How can we cut costs? How can we increase our agility by improving the, the way we do things agility rather than putting up more security barriers and layers? Like let's make things simpler and nimbler. So it's pretty far reaching. So I know Kenny said that you kind of came in and you met the owners and they said, you want to be the CISO. So I'm assuming you were the first CISO. How was that kind of going into that organization? It was an interesting one because the, um, so the co-CEO at the time, uh, Michael he clearly had like a vision of how we could leverage. We needed security, obviously. There wasn't a security function there. We were about five, six years old. And there was more and more requirements from the market, but also just in terms of maturity carrying on without necessarily the best level of governance. We didn't necessarily know what people were doing. Everything was best effort, but there wasn't that uh, that maturity there. And I think one of the things I actually asked him a few months in why he hired me, and he said, I don't care what the role is, I only hire people with some kind of business savvy, business insight. So we try to make security as, as cost effective for the business, but also create added value. Yeah, I don't really, it's so broad, like you got to give me something. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, completely. So I know you've, you spoke a little bit about what your company does. So can you talk about a bit of the size and I guess the stage that the security functions at now so listeners can get a better sense? We've grown it quite quickly. So we're the company's about 150 people. The security team is myself and six others. So we hired a team of, of six people. And that ranges from, we have um, application and infrastructure security. 
person who takes care of that, integrates with engineering, integrates with data, make sure the infrastructure up to snuff, make sure we have all the processes, governance. We have human factors lead, who looks at what people do, communication, culture, awareness, training. And also, you know, if we do see risky behavior, why does it happen? And we actually do a lot of process engineering sometimes. With, uh, if we notice mm, there's, there's room for error when someone does this, we get rid of that, that room for error so the, the issue never occurs in the first place. And we have kind of security engineering, which is like our, our SecOps, so someone to manage the, the EDRs, the, the vulnerability scanning, pen testing, that, that sort of thing. I have a commercial officer, which is a very unusual role. That is basically making sure that because our clients are, are behemoths, we want to make 100% sure that we comply with all the contracts, and all the terms and conditions, which is quite unusual for a SaaS company because it's usually, well, these are our TNCs and you buy the service. But in our case, when the company has a market capital of $100 billion, and they say, no, we want you to do this, we say, okay, we'll do that for you. So just to make sure that we have all those things, but also marketing, marketing security internally, marketing security to our customers. To make, Quite often people come to us, you know, a tender, for example, to choose us over a competitor. They don't ask about security, but we answer the tender and we give them more information about what we do and why. We've researched your, your sector, your market. These are the risks that why we've set up this function. That's why we build things this way. That's why we, we do this, we do that. And only at that point does the light go on in their heads. And then they go to our competitors and start asking the same questions. And they tend to be awkward questions for the competitor, which I like. And it, it's cool to see the commercial teams and the sales team like appreciate like, oh yeah, they, they were interested in that. And that then gives us, brings us more into kind of the, the business side of the organization and it gets you more support and it makes it easier to do actual security. Yeah, so the commercial, what did I miss? That's about it. And then I have a, a program manager as well who helps coordinate and does also all the, all the GRC efforts, all the GRC stuff, all the audit stuff, and compliance, but also uh, coordinates all the work that uh, the rest of the team does. And he's got like a, a little helper as well. So that's, that's our little team. Fantastic. And one of the things that I'd pick up on, I guess, because the size of 150, I think having six security people is quite, I'm not going to say large, but it's a good sized team for an organization that size. A lot of bigger organizations would be hounding for that amount of resource. But one of the things you pick up on is like adding value there and a differentiator. And I think, again, we're a security company. It, it is a big differentiator when you can start talking and say, actually, this is what we do. This is why aren't your competitors doing this? And again, it's like you say, tying it back to that business value. Again, you probably get much buy-in for the rest of the organization saying when you're trying to say, actually, culturally, we need to change this. They see the value of security. They don't see it as a blocker to business. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a hard sell sometimes, even internally. And I was very lucky to, of course, he was very supportive. And there were those questions internally as well. It's like, why do we have so many people? Why do we have, you know, we should be one or two people. And it's like, yes, it should be one or two people in engineering. But then we also need someone to do GRC. We also need this. So everyone's kind of concept of security is, is a little bit siloed. So it's like, yeah, we, we need, you know, an architect and an engineer. And that's all we need for security for engineering but then we also have the governance part we also have the contractual part we also have the secops part so it's explaining that and i'm very like cost conscious as well like we benchmarked when we set up the team size and budget in terms of the size and industry you know a SaaS engineering big data type company and you know we set a target of about well 50 percent. we want to spend 50 percent of what they're spending and we're actually we've cut down from that to where we're spending about a third of the benchmark so I don't know if it's always appreciated. We try to spend as little as possible. We try to generate savings wherever possible. It's also IT reports into me. So I also try to enable the business as much as possible. If people complain about there's too much overhead and it takes too long, we don't like this platform. It's like, well, let's change it. Let's 
uh, let's continuously make it easier and more pleasant for people to work and drive the bottom line as opposed to just being a risk function. Yeah, because you've spoke about kind of your direct report. So who do you report into? Like what? what I report into they? the co-CEO. Okay. Yeah. So you, you report into the co-CEO and then obviously you've got security and IT. So you run like the help desk, the service functions yeah. and everything. Exactly, yeah. Engineering is a separate beast, but the actual yeah, internal yeah. IT is uh, is me, which means you know it, it gives me like direct access to managing like our desktop estate or laptops, for example. Like I'm the one in charge of them, so it's very easy for me to do configuration management, to do device management, as opposed to you know, having to beg somebody else to do it. So that that definitely gives us uh, some more traction security wise. So, what regular kind of like things do you do as a leader? So, what are the frequency of team calls? Your one to ones. How does that work with your team? It's pretty much constant. I don't really believe in, I'm a really big proponent of having like personal relationships with everyone, really. I'm part of things for like, perfect example, to get the, the take up of awareness training up. The strategy is, you know, how to communicate. No, no. Let's go and like personally talk to everyone and make friends. And then when they realize the training is, oh, that's Robin's training, that's Greg's training, that they almost start doing it for you. Same thing with engaging every department. And it the team is no different. If anything, uh, very, very close, you know, constantly on Slack, WhatsApp. If something's not, I mean, we have the luxury of being a relatively small organization, but if something's not working, it, it just gets mentioned immediately. We deal with it. Yeah. I don't believe in this talk to your employee 30 minutes a month, 30 minutes a week. It's, it's a constant thing. Delegate trust, but then when they need something, it's real time. I guess one of the things recently, Greg, that we've seen is obviously transition to remote working. How has that worked for your team? Where are they located? So my team is actually fully remote. It's a bit strange because I'm the only only member of the leadership team in the company that's not in the office because we're Berlin-based and I live in Manchester. I'm actually, you know, I've been CISO since September and next month is going to be the first time I'm in the office. So that has its own challenges, but the entire team is remote. Five are in various places in the UK, one's in Frankfurt. It's not been too difficult. And I think that's going back to just having that close kind of real-time relationship as opposed to, I don't know, the old way of doing it, like bums on seats and presenteeism. It's like, we estimate the amount of work. We track the work that gets done. The culture is very good. So you're like open, honest, communicative. People help each other out. You know, we recently had uh, one member on the team was ill. Another one just had a baby and there were some complications and, you know, everyone's rushing to, to fill the gaps and help each other out. Sometimes one of them's having a bad day and someone who lives maybe half an hour from them is like, hey, boss, do you mind if I go see so-and-so? You're not doing too well today. Like, go, go on. So they, they support themselves the best we can. So I think it's the important part is, is to have that underlying relationship. It does make it trickier. In some fields, you know, like engineering, definitely better to be on site. I totally understand that. But for us, it's been... It's been very doable. Yeah, we've had some, I guess, some challenges with junior members of staff because we bring on a large amount of graduates a year. And I think it's more just for their development. We felt that their development struggled, especially at the beginning, going from, I guess, a university environment to a work environment and then never going to the office. And I think the team's fatigue or not feeling like they could reach out to people, I think, became a problem for us. So we've kind of like, for the junior members, we're trying to, they're trying to go in a few days a week because... I think it's helpful for them. And we're having at least a person in a week every day, not not every day, a few days a week to say, actually, they're there to support them, to help them. So there's somebody who they feel they can ask questions to. I mean, other than that, I think we've working very well remote. I think everyone's adapted to it. But I do think like for junior members of staff, it was 
it was a challenge at the beginning. I can definitely see that. So like my team now is more senior in that, uh, well, not all of them have been in InfoSec for a long time, but they tend to be, I think the average age is around 40. So they, yeah, you know, they have previous work experience. I could definitely see, you know, if you haven't had, if it's your first time, all you know is remote, it can be a bit weird. So yes, it's twice as important to let them know that they can communicate. Yeah, like, and that's kind of one of the next things I wanted to pick up with you actually was like the skill set of the people that you brought in. So I know everyone's talking about the skills gap in information security and cyber. Like, how are you as an organization dealing with that? See, I think that, and this is like, even though the topic of the, the book I wrote is, it's very, I really feel like we're doing cyber information security wrong. I think we're doing it very far downstream, so to speak. So we're constantly dealing with symptoms and we're trying to fix them with technology. I want to be much more focused on let's address the root causes. And there are cultural problems, there are process problems, there are organizational issues. We are building systems poorly, putting them into production, and that causes all kinds of issues and then maintenance nightmares. And it's those problems that we're very far down the line is where we're trying to address them. We're trying to detect and respond to things that wouldn't happen if we built these systems properly or if we crafted the processes you know, more intelligently or more aligned with the business reality or whatever. So instead of hiring scores and scores of SOC analysts and pen testers and forensic people, for me, it's much more important to hire people who can communicate, engage, and actually fix the fundamental problems. And on my team, we have one person who is you know, a through and through IT person, always has been, does run an, an online wine store, but that's totally different. But um, the rest are all kind of, you know, one's a police officer, used to be a police officer, one used to be military, one used to be a teacher, uh, one used to be in sales, one used to be uh, a business owner. So they all have very different skill sets, but they're all very good at engaging, at communicating, of thinking at a business level, like a big picture level, rather than just the IT silo. And I think people are really unappreciated. We don't hire people. We go on and on about diversity. Like there's all these diversity drives and in, in InfoSec. And we talk about how we need like different people with different ways of thinking and different walks of life and all this stuff. Then as soon as they come into it, it's like, okay, but now you have to do things exactly the same way we've <laughs> always done them or we won't accept you and you won't get this job. You know, we're virtually signaling all this diversity and then we're wiping it out before we, we let them actually do their work. And I think the transferable skills that we say kind of compensate for the lack of cyber skills, it's the other way around. Those transferable skills, they're not transferable skills. They're more important skills, like the soft skills, the EQ, the, the engagement skills. You don't meet many IT and security people who are good with people. Like that to me is the real skills gap. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like kind of, I mean, you can have very technical people who understand very technical problems, but like trying to communicate that upwards and in a meaningful way so they understand the risks. So if you tell them there's these 50 vulnerabilities, I mean, that means nothing to them. It's like, okay, what is the impact on the business if this happens and communicate in a way where they understand actually they need to take action on this? Like that is, for me, a much harder skill than telling me there's 50 problems at a very low level. And you see it all the time, don't you? Where it's like all security jobs, it's like 10 years experience in very technical things. And you're like, okay, brilliant. But I also need people who can communicate that and get that point across. Because there's a lot that can be done for training awareness and building relationships for me personally, which is a lot more valuable to change your organization than focusing on always just the technical pieces. And that's not to say technical isn't important. Yeah. And it's funny because there are loads of those, loads of these people out there, but there's not 
So I really, you know, it took, I started in September. We had the team start in, in, in October. You know, it was like finding six people was very easy, but we completely snubbed them. And it's, I, yeah, I find it's, it's a bit weird. Yeah, I've seen a lot of like, especially when you talk about police and ex-military. Um, there was a lot when I was working at Deloitte where they took a program on of that, where there was a lot of, they focused on actually ex-military and ex-police people moving into roles into management there in security, cyber, IT risk. And that was a pathway they took. They were like, actually, we think those skills are very transferable because they've got skills to investigate things, deal with pressure and bring them in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think yeah, the whole skills gap thing, I'm, I'm just not buying it. It's just a, it's, it's something we've created ourselves by not being a bit more looking wider than just the, oh, this is what I need. Yeah, I really think so. Because you, you look at the job market and it's funny because everyone that wants to go into security, like 99% want to be a SOC analyst, forensics, or pen tester. Everybody wants to be a pen tester. But we don't even have a name. There's no role for someone who sees issues and then engages the business or IT or engineering to fix those issues, to fix a process, to fix you know how to build systems properly from the get-go. That's not even a role in security. How is that not a role? Like we, we've agreed to not fix anything, like l- let the whole pipeline be a disaster and then just clean the stuff up at the end of what comes out. That's not sustainable. I mean, it's great commercially if you're a security company, but... It's kind of like secure by design, isn't it? Like at the beginning, actually taking it instead of downstream problems going, actually, the way to deal with this is have people who can upstream, deal with these problems, identify them, and then we remediate them. And then at the bottom... Hopefully that mess that you spoke about there is a lot easier to deal with because it's the exceptions rather than the norm. Exactly. And when you see those, instead of just, you know, like, oh, there's this vulnerability or something happened because this thing patch got exploited, but then, oh, we fixed it and we patched it. Okay, but why wasn't it patched the first time? You know, go, you know, is there an asset management issue where the system wasn't identified? Is the patch platform not working? Is the policy not working? Is it not configured right? Like, go, go a bit deeper. And I think that's why... That's why I like to consider security a quality function. Because if you build things properly, like look at like a, you know, a software engineering type SaaS company. If you have developers who are not necessarily trained in how to write high quality, compact, secure code, you're not just introducing security vulnerabilities. It's going to be slower to run. It's going to be buggier. You're going to have maybe UX issues or use other non-security issues maybe cobbled together in such a way that the engineering teams who then have to support those applications, it's not as easily maintainable as it should be. It's constructed a bit awkwardly. It's very difficult to upgrade or patch. And these are all things that they increase costs. They slow down your application. They undermine the customer experience because there might be quality issues beyond security issues. You have engineers getting frustrated with developers because like you're giving us stuff to maintain that's costing us three times more effort than it should. You know, people leave, people want raises, you've got retention issues, you need to hire more people. These all have costs to the business. And if you look at security from, if you fix the quality, you don't just have fewer security issues, you improve all these other things as well. That's a way where like, if you address security holistically and as far upstream as you can, you have indirect, but very broad range of business benefits. Yeah, there's a lot kind of very similar to like what DevOps did, right? Where you start to actually say, put security in it a stage, they're consulted throughout, they're helping you from the beginning. Same with compliance. I mean, I talk about this all the time and kind of a different subject, but like compliance is always an afterthought at the very end of building something and you get to the end and then the compliance person goes, no, 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 you can't do this. You need to go and start again. Well, it's like, okay, well, if you bring security and compliance in at the beginning and you bring along the journey and you're not just there just to say no and you're an enabler to business, 
you'll get things done quicker. You'll probably get it done better from the beginning. You don't have to redo the code three or four times. It can make such a big difference to the business, but everyone's like, we just need to get this first thing done. And then these are afterthoughts. It's kind of flipping it on his head and going, actually, we should bring these to the front and really help enable business as we go through rather than just like try and deal with it at the end because it, it ultimately never, <laughs> never makes it quicker. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the reasons you need really broad business buy-in, business understanding, because you can have something for, okay, but I need you to do it this way. And then they're like, oh, but that's going to make it cost 5% more, take 5% longer. Yes, for your department, but it's going to cost the department that it's going to mean that the departments that's supporting it, that they're going to spend 50% less effort maintaining it. And we're going to have fewer issues and we're not going to have to do like cleanup efforts every three months. And that is huge amounts of overhead. So if you look at Yes, I'm incurring you an extra cost of 5% to save the other department 50% because, well, it's not really saving them. They shouldn't have to incur that extra cost because you cut a corner to save five. And it's helping, you know, painting the, the whole picture so that people understand the total cost of you know, how you build things, life cycles, maintenance costs. Because you know, everyone thinks about build, 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 build. They don't think about how to maintain it. And how difficult. And then you got security teams and you know DevOps teams complaining about, well, we don't have the time, we don't have the manpower, we don't have the budget. You don't necessarily need that much time, a resource, or budget, but you do need the people upstream to build it properly in a way that has that, that lower TCO. It's all about kind of reducing the total cost of ownership and addressing things up front, isn't it? I mean, I think it seems so obvious when you talk about it, but I mean, so many people like they're so focused right down here that they need to take a step back and actually go, how do we address this? But I can see how you easily get into that cycle. So what are the, where are you spending your time currently? Like what are the big things that your key priorities that you're focusing on? So for us, a lot of it is application engineering focused. The second half of this year, we're, re, we're trying to make a, a security function, a almost an upskilling function. We want really want to like educate, push, not just do awareness, but actually increase people's skills especially in those engineering functions. So we have fewer issues. They understand and are more autonomous in avoiding having issues or correcting issues on their own because they once they understand the context, the importance. Also engaging maybe like non-technical parts of the organization in terms of how they work, what they work with, understanding those things better, identifying risks, human risks, where data is, do some process engineering there to just really discover the business and where are potential attack surface or areas of concern might be where we have data, this kind of thing. That, Yeah, for me, it's still very much about understanding the business first. That's always my highest priority and kind of embedding ourselves, getting that traction, getting that support. Yeah, and just streamlining things as much as possible. Tooling as well. I mean, we're about six months in now. So now we've, you know, we've got the AppSec stuff, we've got the EDR going, we've got the endpoint management, we've got the vulnerability scanning, you know, all the usual stuff. So this year it's more... Um, yeah, we're just going to refine more and more. Like the, the more we understand about the business, the more we can streamline, uh, the more we can formalize things. So, okay, we've thought it through. We can run it this way. We don't have to change it anymore. It'll run itself. Move on to other things. So, yeah, we'll start. start. It's funny because you're you know seven months in. It's already time to start formalizing things a bit. So sometimes it feels like you're not doing anything, but then you look back and say, oh. One of the things you said that's quite interesting around the technology stack is you've got a lot of things there. I mean, because one of the things I often hear is we've got lots of great, data points do you struggle to get those data points together into like a i don't know a formalized picture of what you need do you feel like those tools give you an overarching view or they give you the bits the information that you have to piece together yourself i'd say we've got pretty good visibility so we have 
you know, we know exactly how every endpoint is configured in terms of desktop laptops. I've got real-time visibility to that. We are an AWS shop. We use Lightspin. So the beauty with using cloud is, and the bad thing is that people can spin up things very quickly and it goes out of control very quickly. But the good thing is Amazon wants to bill you for all of them. So you <laughs> API and know exactly what you have. And then, you know, vulnerability scanning every day for anything that's not hooked up to AWS. Yeah, I mean, we've got most of it. We've got logging. And that's another thing we're trying to do is like understand more about the systems and applications, historical ones that we have, so we can incorporate them into logging. We're also kind of building a whole new infrastructure that's a bit more elegant, simpler, easier to manage and transferring everything over. But I'm not really struggling from a technical standpoint of systems, processes, front ends, back ends. No, I think we have really, really good visibility. Uh, okay. A lot of that comes from being cloud-based. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes it much easier to at least understand what's there. So in terms of the things that you spoke a lot about, so what are the things that are working really well? And is there some things that are working not so well at the moment? Well, obviously, I'm not going to tell you about the things that aren't working. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I think a lot of things are working quite well. I think we're, we're getting uh, pretty decent support from the business now. People are starting to get it. You know, we've got the tooling rolled out. We are seeing things. It does sometimes seem like there's a mountain to climb, but then you look back and it's like, well, we've removed tons and tons of issues from the environment. And it's actually pretty good. And most of what's left is you know, strategically planned to be cleaned up in the next year or so because there could be environment changes and this and that. Where we're still, I'd say, struggling. I say struggling. It's probably just me being impatient because I'm sick <laughs> of it. Is the cultural change? And for a, a whole number of historical reasons, the company's had like a complete refresh of the leadership team. And people don't always understand what's happening. You know, they're like, oh, a lot of a lot of managers have left, but it's because we've brought in like flipping a team, a leadership team. But we we still need to communicate that, and people still need to understand who does what and why we do these things. But that's cultural change, and you wouldn't really, you know, it's just talking to uh, to another company, and that you need at least eighteen months to affect that change. So it's probably too early. We definitely have a lot of champions already, so I'm quite happy about that. Okay. So I know you spoke a lot about kind of what's working well, what's not. So what are the biggest challenges you've had coming into this role? Communication. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it's interesting because you think you've communicated relatively well, but then you hear, you know, you hear voices or you hear from someone that someone made a comment that they still understand why this, why that size team, this, that, that. So it's definitely like you do need to, we always have to work on our own communication is one thing. Yeah, another thing that I observed recently, it's like, okay, oh, we've got here, we've got these issues here, we've got these issues here, we've got these issues. And it's like, those issues are happening in places that are owned by other people and they don't necessarily like to hear about those issues. So they're not aware is that it's a bit prickly. So to kind of change the tone of like, how can we make things better? How can we, instead of focusing on the, this is the current state, like, where do we want to go? And, and let's go there together. That's been part of it. Yeah, really communication, because I, I think we have, I mean, I've been fortunate to get basically Greenfield with enough, but very, very frugal on the budget, but it's still like all the basic things I needed, I have. So I think we have all the technical basics covered. Now it's a question of like going deeper and deeper into the business to make sure that we understand all the things that you can't see with just the tech. Like, okay, I know we have AWS, I know we have these Docker images and these EC2s and this and that, but I don't necessarily know what application is running on them and who uses that and what do they do with it and what data is in it and what's the business purpose and value of that. That's kind of where we're, we're going deeper. But communication is always the hardest thing. 
Yeah, it is, isn't it? And then that's kind of upwards and downwards. And he's talking like how you communicate upwards to say, actually, these are the areas of concern. With, uh, but I guess the other one is talking to your peers and getting them to buy in, like you say, go, actually, don't talk about the problem, but just say, actually, there's this thing and we can help you with it. And it's kind of reframing the conversation around, actually, we've identified this. How can we help you to resolve this? Rather than just saying, there's a problem, go away and fix it. And then they just, <laughs> it's just twisting it on his head, isn't it? Yeah, I think we, you know, in, in IT and especially security, we've always been notoriously bad at communicating. I mean, like, I think I'm, I'm better than most, but probably still not as good as I need to be. And one of my favorite memories was about a couple of years ago. There was a an event, a lot of like C levels, but like board level CEOs, so CEO, COO, CFOs, and when they were asked, like, what's the number one reason you fund your cybersecurity functions? The most common answer was to make them go away. <laughs> that's that's how poor we are communicating we get funded through being annoying i think the other thing that people have struggled is is like demonstrating value i mean you've spoke a lot about it it's like i think i guess sea levels have thought that they've had their fingers burnt with putting lots and lots and lots of money into things but not really at the end of it saying what value have you delivered back to the business like from what you have said it's like actually we're delivering lots of value we're enabler to business we're able to win new contracts we're making security differentiator. Like that's how you make security important to a business rather than just saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, and we need more money. Because, I mean, eventually that, that message doesn't resonate for forever, does it? No one wants to give you more money to make their life more difficult. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, I mean, I do a fair bit of public speaking and lately my, my theme's been like, let, let's switch the driver for security, let's move away from risk and let's have business be the main driver and just risk be a consequence. And it's things like, okay, I need to know every piece of software in the organization from a security perspective. Like I just need to have the inventory. I need to know the T's and C's. I need to know what, uh, you know, is there a log, log 4J in there? That type of thing. That means I have visibility to every piece of software that we have. I can then ask what we pay for it. I can then ask, well, why do we have three suites that do the same thing and you know i have someone on my team who's used to be in sales so he knows all the resellers he knows what's a good deal he knows what's not he's paid for his salary like three times over or he will have money and just by you know calling some vendors up and getting a better deal on on some software licenses so that's one way of contributing and consolidating and it's not just we don't need all these different tools we have one let's agree to use the one but it's also the the ongoing overhead of maintaining one tool versus three yeah so these are all ways of cutting costs of helping the bottom line, but you can, you can increase the top line. And that's where we do, you know, we do a lot of uh, branding, trying to make security part of a brand value. You know, we, when we answer security questionnaire, A, we try to answer it very quickly. We compile the information to have a quick turnaround because that keeps the momentum in the sale going. And when they reach that point and we immediately have an answer and it looks nice and it's a good looking document, it's very thorough. We can show evidence. They're impressed with like, oh, you know, because usually security is a bit, and it's like, oh, these guys really have their stuff together in an area of security, which is not typically that important to the salespeople. So it must be really good elsewhere, right? And the, you know, the analogy I use is the car fanatic, obviously. If I have this old classic little vintage car that I love and I take it to a, a garage, I don't let anyone touch it, but I have to take it to a garage to get service every now and then. And they just they take it in the back and they get it back five hours later with an invoice saying they change the oils and the filters and this and that. That's pretty much like a security questionnaire. I don't know if they actually do it, but I trust that they do it. 
if I take it to a different garage and there's a glass partition and I can see them working on it and it's very organized and they're using, you know, brand name oils. And if I have questions, I can walk in the back and see them working on my car and all this stuff. Well, I can see that they care about what I care about. So if I have a choice, I'm going to go to garage number two every single time, even if it's 10% more expensive. And that's you're, now you're starting to talk about top line value where you can actually charge maybe a little bit more money because they, they understand that you're going the extra mile. Would you pay an extra 10% and not risk losing your 50 million intellectual property? Probably good value. Yeah. I mean, when you put it in like kind of that level of return, it's like, actually, what is this thing supporting? What's the level of risk and how serious do they take it? If you could demonstrate that yeah. as a software company, it's a huge differentiator, isn't it? Yeah. Because we work you know, in manufacturing. So it's our customers are mostly manufacturing or fast moving consumer goods. So it's like you know, jet engines, turbines, cars. So we, you know, you get to see the designs of cars or aircraft and that kind of stuff. Hugely sensitive. I think most of our customers don't even realize this. And I used to work for um, a Canadian aviation company. I won't name who they were. And they had a lot of uh, subcontractors. And there's a fair amount of uh, information being leaked by those to those subcontractors. It was not, yeah, the, the control around intellectual property was not very good. Uh, we The running gag was like, well, someone's going to be building this plane soon, but it won't be us. <laughs> we, we literally had subcontractors who would, you know, they would get parts of information about avionics, fuselage, whatever. And then three weeks later, they would have a new division that advised on how to do these things. And it was like, oh, they've stolen all our IP again, haven't they? <laughs> so I guess uh, on to the, the next bit. And so what are your biggest areas of concern for 2022? What are the things that are keeping you up at night? Fuel prices. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely agree. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, we do this all the time. We talk about like, what's the trend this year? What's the trend that year? And yeah. to me, it's like, I've seen so few companies do the fundamentals properly. And that's what we are trying to do. And we're doing that. There's still more to do. And we're just going to keep doing the fundamentals. That basically makes you immune. You know? So we have the basic capabilities. You know? We have visibility. We have the ability to control, to configuration manage, to update, to patch, to detect stuff if something should happen. Now we're just going to make sure that you know, we get in every nook and cranny. That's it. I'm not. It's like, oh, the Russian this, the Chinese that, the this, the that. The... If you don't have vulnerabilities, if you've explored every area of your business, your processes, your systems, and you've made sure there's no chinks in them, nothing's going to get through. Instead of investing heavily in you know, all these, these detection and response scenarios and capabilities, well, we have what we need. We're just going to invest in preventing the thing from happening in the first place. And I'm going to bring up the word ransomware. So, I mean, I've heard it so many times. How big a ticket is this for you? Is this something that's a huge area of concern? It's an area of concern in, in terms of we need the capability to basically fully rebuild our environment from scratch if we had to. Uh, yeah. Absolute worst case scenario. That's something that we're putting in place. Other than that, there's not that much to do about it because ransomware is not, well, ransomware itself is not new, but ransomware is a way of monetizing a breach. Yeah. Oh, yeah, breached. So all the all the upstream work, focusing on that, getting the fundamentals right. Like you say, if you're doing that, then like you say the ransomware thing is yeah it's something we need to be wary of. But in itself, it's actually get the fundamentals right, and we know how to deal with it as and when or if it happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, in the industry, you keep hearing that. Uh, I think it's Rob Mueller quote of you know there's only two types of companies: those have been hacked and those are going to be hacked. But we use that as an excuse to invest almost solely in detection and response rather than actually securing things to prevent those things from happening. 
And don't get me wrong, something you're always going to miss something. Yeah. But we can, we can do a hundred times more than than we're doing currently. I mean, you, you go into most organizations and you get a report of missing patches, and there will be thousands of them, <laughs> guys. It's like, yeah. oh, let's build a new socks. Like, no, guys, just install the freaking patches. Define your job roles. Set up the access controls. Update the software. Document the processes. Like, invest there first. It seems so basic when you talk about it at that level, doesn't it? It's like, we on, don't like, it. let's take a step back. Let's deal with this problem. And then again, downstream problems should become a lot, lot easier uh, to deal with. I've only got a couple of questions left for you. So what are the lessons that you've learned from, I guess, pandemic from the last two years and how have you kind of applied them to what you're doing going forward i'm not sure what i've learned that's new in the last two years to be honest i don't know if it's pandemic related but definitely kind of more engagement i can tell you something that i've always known controlling your endpoints is really really important (laughs) don't use some random platform that just kind of vaguely pushes stuff out you must have tight control but other than that i think it's we've had remote working for a long time We've scaled up remote working in a big way, but you should have been, you know, most companies had what, 10, 15% remote working. Yeah. You should have thought through that 10 years ago when you set it up. So, yeah. Everyone was able to do it. It was one of those things where lots of companies didn't want to do it. The trust wasn't there. But I mean, ultimately, like most people who've had products or working engineering functions have been doing this. They've been doing it remote and blended teams for a while. For us, it wasn't a huge thing. Like I say, it was for graduates, but for the rest of the company, Everyone kind of just adjusted, got a bit meeting overload. <laughs> We've sorted that out, but look, it's just one of those things. Yeah. And, and back to your comment before, like it's, there are like graduates, there are challenges, but the additional opportunities, I think, outweigh that. Yeah. Remote working. You can get talent anywhere. It does open up complete different avenues of where you can hire, what you can do. And for me, my work life balance has got so much better. I'm not traveling three hours a day to go to the office. Like that's, I actually work more because of that because I'm not, I see that as time I've got back, but ultimately it means that I can go for a run at lunchtime. There's things I can do that previously were just not things that in my, where I worked prior that were things you even thought of. So look, I've got two more questions for you before we go. So how are you measured and what does success look like for you? Uh, how am I measured? It's funny because initially I really wasn't measured. Now we've implemented some, uh, some OKRs, but these are, quite high level. So most of my OKRs now are implementing capability. So a lot of the tooling processes, you know, commercially it's, you know, uh, being able to respond to RFIs very quickly, even the marketing side, you know, rolling out awareness programs, coming up with the architectural standards, implementing, you know, application security testing, that sort of thing. In terms of effectiveness of the controls, I'm a bit wishy-washy on this because I think unless you have Perfect visibility or near perfect visibility, it's very hard to actually do that. And a lot of people just look, oh, we have X number of vulnerabilities, but and it's gone down. It's like, great, but you don't even know if you're capturing everything or what they mean or so that. Obviously, like number of issues is going down steadily. To me, success would be everything is operationalized, everything is more and more automation, fewer and fewer issues. You and you reach a point of like diminishing returns where you can actually downsize the team, downsize the tooling, downsize security. Everyone wants to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. But I think if you address the fundamentals instead, you're going to have less and less to work with. So we have, you know, certain, I want to get to a point where we can patch, you know, within 24 hours for criticals, 
pretty much automatically with no fuss. Uh, we understand the applications. We know what we can do. And we're able to do you know, full ransomware recovery. That'll be success for me. That's you know, probably two years away to get absolutely everything. I structure everything I do in, um, in a framework, everything from executive support to compliance to I have like a, a SaaS layer. So every SaaS application that we use, Salesforce, Myra Board, Google Workspace, we go through it, we assess it, we talk to every part of the business that uses it, how they use it. And sometimes we help them optimize it for their own use while securing it, tightening up the, the job, the roles, profiles, that sort of thing. So you know, going through all of those, all the operational IT processes, dev, engineering, even sales, you know, even something as, as simple as sales where you don't, security gets involved first step where we don't overpromise to customers, which then creates pressure on engineering to deliver, which then causes quality issues. Uh, so I have this whole framework of things from you know, commercial to human factors to operations to when I'm done going through them all, I'll be done. Then I'll be looking for my next job. <laughs> Fantastic. So look, I, I really do appreciate your time. So just the final question is, Look, we're always looking for other security leaders, influencers, people in this. Who would you recommend that we speak to next? I like the idea of speaking to leaders. I think in security, because the leadership, if you want to generalize the kind of skill set of leadership, I think is lacking. I think I'm a big fan of Dr. Mansour Hasib. Okay. Uh, sorry, I just pinged there. So Mansour Hasib, no I definitely have him to talk about information. Well, his, his book is Cybersecurity Leadership, I believe. Yeah, it's got some really interesting analogies, ways of, of communicating. Definitely give him a whirl if you can. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Greg, for your time today. Um, really do appreciate it. Um, can you, is there anywhere that our listeners can get in touch with you? Is there anywhere you want to communicate with them? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just Greg Vandergast on LinkedIn. Happy to connect. And fantastic. We'll put, put a link to the to your bio uh, in the podcast so people can contact you. Right. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Cheers.